morning. Got your Bible open to Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, some of the scriptures will be on the screen, or you can, if you got a smartphone, you can pull it up on your Bible app on the smartphone. But we're going to be in Revelation 2 today. And if you have a worship folder, you can take notes in there. You'll also find a connect card, which is a great way for us to communicate with each other. If you fill that out and you drop it in the offering later, and uh, believe me, it's not an invitation for us to just show up at your house unannounced, but it is a way for us to communicate, and you can let us know about prayer requests or things you want information about, so you can fill that out as well. You know, there is a, like a drift that can take place in any relationship. It may be more obvious than like a dating relationship or a marriage relationship, but this drift can take place between parents and their children. It can take place between friends. It's what Rick actually calls love erosion. Just a drift that takes place in a relationship. I heard uh, an old story about something like this. It took place several years ago. It was a young newlywed couple. Well, actually, they've been married for a couple of years. And they were out on a Sunday afternoon drive. Now, as I scan the audience, some of you, I need to explain a couple of things for this story to make sense. If you're, like, younger than me, let me tell you two things about the time that this took place. One, there was a time, boys and girls, when it didn't take half your paycheck to fill your gas tank. There was a time, I've heard of that there was a time when gas cost, like, a quarter a gallon. So you need to understand that. And you need to understand, too, that cars didn't always look like they do now. And now we've got two bucket seats in the front. But there was a time when cars had a bench in the front, like kind of like this. So if you wanted, you could put three or four people in the front seat. Did anybody ever do that? Along around the same time when we didn't even know what seat belts were for. You, you put it on, it was just to see what it felt like. That's about this time. So you put a lot of people in the front seat. Or if you were dating or married, you could sit next to each other. So you've got this couple who's been married for a couple of years way back in the day. They're out for their Sunday afternoon drive because they could afford to. And they're driving around just looking at things. After a while, the w they're having this conversation. Actually, the wife was talking. The husband was just kind of nodding his head and grunting. And so they're driving, and the wife said, you remember when we first were dating and we got married and how in love we were? And he's like, yeah. Said, you just remember we would do this, and we would drive, and we were so close, and we were so in love. Do you remember that? Yeah. You remember how we just couldn't get enough of each other? We just sat so close to each other even when we were driving. Do you remember that? He's like, yeah. He said, why don't we do that anymore? And he finally said more than one word. And he looked over and he said, who moved? Right? There is a drift that can happen in any relationship. And over time, you find that you're just not as close as you once were. There's not that enthusiasm, that passion, that zeal. You know, when you were first friends or when you first got married or you know, when there was times in your life, maybe as a parent or with your parents, that you just, things were exciting, but maybe there's a drift that's happened in your relationship and you're just not as close as you once were. And maybe you find that you're, like, doing all the things you're supposed to do in that relationship and you're checking all the boxes and you're doing everything you know you're supposed to do in that relationship, but your heart's not in it. There's more of a sense of duty than, like, actually passion or enthusiasm for that other person. If you were honest, you may even say that's maybe happened at some point in your relationship with God. Churches can drift. People who make up those churches can drift and, and get away from that passion and that zeal and that enthusiasm. And so you even find in your relationship with God, you're like checking all the boxes. You're doing all the things you're supposed to do. You're showing up, but your heart's not really in it. There's no zeal. There's no enthusiasm. There's no passion. There's no commitment. And you, you maybe find yourself in your most honest moments with God, maybe late at night, you're laying in bed and you feel like, I'm just not as close to God as I once was. And you know what God maybe wants to say to us? Who moved? Who moved? 
Take your Bible and you're in Revelation 2. Jesus has got a message to his church and he says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, I want you to write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus and he's dictating a letter to the first of what will be seven churches that he's going to have letters sent out to. And as he's speaking to these seven churches, who is he telling to write these things down to? Who is it that's supposed to write this down and send it, this out? You were here last week, you know, it's John, the Apostle John. And uh, if, by the way, if you missed last week and the week before last, or both of them, uh, I would highly encourage you to go to our church website. Pull down the message and listen to it. You can download it and listen to it later. You can listen to it right then. But there's some foundational stuff as we go through Revelation 1 that explains what we're going to do through the rest of Revelation as we study it. So go back and listen to that. This is the Apostle John. This is the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John in the Bible. He's the one who wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in your Bible. He's John who wrote the Revelation down. Uh, this is John who is Jesus' closest friend. And as he is listening to the words of Jesus and writing this down, which will be a letter to the church at Ephesus, where's he at? Anybody remember from last week? If you were here? Patmos, the island of Patmos. Now, as I explained it last week, is that like saying I'm on the island of Hawaii or I'm on the island of Tahiti or Oahu? Is it like a vacation for him? No, this is more like I'm on the Al island of Alcatraz. I'm, I'm in Guantanamo Bay. The Roman government found Christians to be a threat, supposedly, and so they tried to take out Christianity, these followers of Jesus, and they did that by going after the leaders. So they're imprisoning or killing off the leaders. John is one of those guys who got caught up in this. He's sent off to Patmos, and it's there that Jesus meets him, and he says, I've got a word to my churches. And these are seven, as we go through Revelation 2 and 3, these are seven real churches and real cities that existed 2,000 years ago. But as we understood it, we realized that because there are seven churches, that's symbolic. The number seven in Revelation means wholeness or completeness, a whole set. So while Revelation wasn't first written to us, it was certainly written for us. And so there's a message here for Connection Christian Church as he writes to the church at Ephesus. And he says, I've got some things to say to you. Now, we've got a map here. As John was on the island of Patmos, if you look to the, to the east of that, you'll see that Ephesus would have been the first place that, that his letters that he sent out would have gone. So it would have first got to Ephesus. There was a postal route that went all the way from Ephesus all the way around to Laodicea. And so the seven churches that are referenced in Revelation 2 and 3, as John writes these letters, it's to that region. John was probably the overseer of the churches there in Asia Minor. We, we know it as Turkey now. And so John was writing to seven real churches. And the city of Ephesus is not actually there today. They're doing archaeological digs all the time there. They found where it was. We're 2,000 years removed, so we don't really understand this, but Ephesus was a world-class city 2,000 years ago. Today, if you talk about world-class cities, what are we talking about? London, Paris, Tokyo, Los Angeles, New York. You know, the, those are the big cities of today. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the world. 2,000 years ago, if you talk about world-class cities, you were talking about Rome. You were talking about Alexandria, Egypt. You were talking about Ephesus. Everybody knew her. It's a beautiful city. It was one of the most populated places in the world at that time. Highly educated people. People went there to get educated. They went there to do business. People went there just because it was a beautiful place to go. It was one of the biggest spots in the world. And this church existed in a world-class city. And the church itself was a world-class church. It was a great church, the Ephesian church there. If you want to know where this church started, it's actually in your Bible. We have a record of it in Acts chapter 19. The Apostle Paul himself started the church at Ephesus. He planted this church. And it says that he spent three years there with that church, the longest he spent in any of the churches he planted. So you just think about this. 
The Apostle Paul himself plants this church. It also says in Acts 19, he set up in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. He lectured for every day, just for hours every day. So I, I know that you guys think I'm awesome. And thank you for that. But how about the Apostle Paul teaching for hours every day in your church, in the hall of Tyrannus, the public meeting space? That's like getting a Ph.D., He's just there, and you come, and you're just writing this down, going, this is good. This should be like being the Bible or something. And this is what Paul's doing. He's just teaching them over. And so it's, they had this amazing level of teaching in this church. Paul, just over 3,000 hours in that two-year two, two year period, if I did the math right, of just teaching about Jesus, teaching about our faith in Jesus. So this world-class church had this powerful teaching. And so this is really important to us. I think this is one of the reasons why the center of Christianity shifted from Jerusalem after the persecution drove the Christians out to Rome, to Ephesus, to Alexandria. And so if you love Jesus and you love the Bible, this is an important step in the spread of Christianity, that Paul would start this church in this city and that they would do this. And there was some great teaching there. Not only was there the lecturing that Paul did, Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians that's in your Bible. He later wrote that back to that church, and we've got the benef- we're the beneficiaries of that. The Apostle John wrote 1 John first to this church. So there's just a lot of powerful teaching that took place there. Beyond that, there were two other world-class teachers who went to church here, a man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They taught in this church, and they, they were part of this church for a while. Again, one of the most powerful and well-known Christian speakers of that day, it was like the Billy Graham of his day or the, the Rick Warren of his day, or a man named Apollos, and he was teaching in this church. So there's just a lot of high-class teaching going on in this church. You know why else it was a great church? They had great leadership. Beyond the Apostle Paul teaching there, uh, after Paul left, he eventually would send a young pastor named Timothy to lead, be the lead pastor of this church. You ever heard of Tim? He's got two books of the Bible named after him. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy to tell him how to pastor and lead in this church at Ephesus. So one of the greatest pastors of the first century is the pastor of this church. Beyond that, as I told you, the Apostle John eventually settled in this area, and John was the one who oversaw not only the church at Ephesus, but probably all the churches in that region. So in this church, you've got Timothy, you've got Aquila and Priscilla maybe still, Apollos, you've got, um, and beyond that, when John came to Ephesus, church tradition says this, this isn't from the Bible, but tradition says that John brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him when he came there, that she spent her last days there. So if that's true, can you imagine preaching in that church? And you look out there and you see the Apostle John, and you look out there and you see Mary, the mother of Jesus. Can you imagine preaching that Christmas sermon? I mean, in church, they're not listening to the pastor. You're like, Mary, did that really happen like he said it happened? <laughs> this church has just got amazing leadership. Beyond that, think about this. Those three years that Paul spent there, he invested himself in godly men who became elders in that church. The shepherds, the overseers, the pastors of that church were trained by the apostle Paul. After three years, he had to leave, but he came back a few months later, and he talked to the elders, and he they all met on a beach, and they, they were talking. And Paul said, you guys know, you're elders in the church. I mean, you know the kind of life I lived while I was among you. I didn't take advantage of anyone. I wasn't out for personal gain. I, as I was among the people, it was all about Jesus, and I've taught you that way, and you lead that way. And Paul encouraged them and warned them and said, you need to protect this church because there are going to be people who are going to come into this church, and they're going to pretend to be Christian leaders, but they're only come in to exploit the people. They're going to teach things that are not true. They're coming in like wolves among the sheep. And so you as elders, you have to protect this church. And they did. The elders at Ephesus did a phenomenal job of leading and protecting that church. 
So the church had great teaching. It had great leadership. It also had great ministry and mission outreach. This church was just powerful. In Acts 19, again, it says that the message of Christ went out all over Asia Minor because of the Ephesian church. This church raised up leaders from within the church, and then as they were ready to do something more for Christ, they would send them out and say, we're going to support you financially. You go start a new church in this new town where there's nobody preaching about Jesus right now. So there are people who are going to be in heaven, maybe thousands or millions of people who will be in heaven because of the Ephesian church was willing to take their best and brightest teachers and leaders and send them out to start new churches. And they had such a powerful ministry. They took care of each other in the church. They took care of people in their community who had need. I'll tell you this. If, if you go back to the first century and take the Internet back to the first century, and if the Ephesian church had a website, if you clicked on that and you're like, wow, this church is amazing. There's a lot going on. You click on ministries. They've got all these things in the church where they're taking care of each other. You click on missions. You see all the church plants that they've started. You, it'd be a church you'd want to go to. It was just a world-class church in a world-class city. And Jesus would not disagree. Look at Revelation 2, 4. I'm sorry, verse 3. Uh, and actually, I'm going to go back to verse 2. <laughs> I'm here eventually. Verse 2, Jesus said, I know your deeds. I, it, by the way, if anybody can say with full credibility, I know something, wouldn't it be Jesus? I know. I mean, I know everything, and I know about your church. I know your deeds. I know all the good things you're doing. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance, that you're sticking it out in the face of hardship. I know you can't tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but aren't and found them false. You're, you're rooting out the false teachers in your church, and you're not putting up with that stuff. Down in verse 6, you have this in your favor. You hate that Nicolaitan junk, and I hate that stuff also, Jesus says. Now, he doesn't hate the Nicolaitans. He hates what they're teaching and what they're doing. The Ephesian church, Jesus says, you guys get a big attaboy. I love what your church is doing. You are doing amazing things in the world. Now, verse 4, yet, again, if there's something, something you don't want Jesus to say to you, wouldn't it be but? You guys are doing great, but you're doing all these great things in my name, and you've not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have abandoned your first love. You're doing all these great things, but I've got to ask myself, Jesus says, why you're doing it. The one who walks among the seven lampstands and the one who holds the angelic messengers of the church in his right hand says, I know everything you're doing, and yet I also see your heart, and I know that you as a church, you've forsaken your first love. You're checking all the boxes. You've stuck it out in the face of persecution. But now I've just got to ask you, where's the love, church? Why are you doing all this stuff? Who's moved, church? I heard a very touching story. A friend of mine shared this with me. It was about an 89-year-old couple. <laughs> it's kind of sad because this 89-year-old this woman was arrested for shoplifting. And uh, eventually she had to make an appearance in court, stand before the judge, who seemed pretty shocked to have an 89-year-old woman stand for him. And so he looked at the charges and he looked at her and he says, Ma'am, why are you here? Is it true that you were arrested shoplifting? She said, yeah. Why did you do that? I was hungry. And he was like, well, I don't know what to do, basically. And he said, well, what did you steal? And she said, I stole a can of peaches. 
And finally, he just said, yeah, I've got to do something here. He said, so how many peaches do you think were in that can, ma'am? And she said, well, I think they're probably about six. So all right, I'm going to sentence you to six days. And he was about to pound the gavel, and her husband spoke up. And he said, Your Honor, may I speak on my wife's behalf? He said, Of course, certainly, step up. And he stood up, and he says, Your Honor, I would like you to know, my wife also stole a can of peas. <laughs> Where's the love? Something's not right there. Every relationship is susceptible to love erosion. Every relationship, if you don't tend it and nurture it, is capable of drifting off course. It can happen in a marriage. It can happen in a dating relationship. It can happen in a friendship. It can happen in a parent and child relationship. It can happen in a church. It can happen in your relationship with Jesus. And here's what happens. Time goes on, and just like the Ephesian church, we're doing all the right things. We're checking all the boxes. We're doing all the things we're supposed to do. We're still showing up, but there's no love behind it. There's no zeal. There's no passion, and you just think, where did all the love go? Christian teacher and, and author Oswald Chambers, uh, he wrote something once that's been very convicting to me. He said this, beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus Christ, and the greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for Jesus. Could that be right? The greatest competitor to devotion for Jesus is service for him because serving God can absolutely get in the way of loving God if we're not careful and it happened in the Ephesian church they were still doing all the right things but at the end of it Jesus who saw their hearts said you're just not doing it because you love me anymore something happened there and I think that because we know that Revelation was also written for us Jesus may want to look at our church and he may want to say connection Christian church Where's the love? Are you still doing what you're doing because you love me? You're doing a lot of good things in the community. You're doing a lot of good things in the world. You're doing a lot of good for each other, but what's driving that? Right? What is it that's motivating you? you? You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say anything out loud, but if you were to honestly think about why you come to church on Sunday, why you serve in a ministry, why you go to life group, would you say that you do it out of love or do you do it out of a sense of duty, obligation, checking the box because I'm supposed to do this and I know that's what God expects from me, so I'm going to do what he expects me to do. And, and you're just doing what you've always done. Maybe it's just a habit. We've just always go to, gone to church on Sunday morning, so we're going to keep going, and that's just what we do. And, and you don't even think about why you're doing it. It's just what we always do. Or, or maybe, maybe you're working out of a sense of guilt and you're trying to assuage your conscience, and you're trying to work off your debt to God, and you're f wondering if you've done enough good to outweigh the bad, or you've shown up enough or read your Bible enough, and if you miss something, you feel a tremendous sense of guilt out of proportion to what you should feel in a relationship where there's love and acceptance because you're just doing this out of sense of guilt, not love. Or maybe, maybe you're just coming to check the box and say, I did that, so now I, can, I did what God wants me to do, so now I can go do what I want to do. That's what happens when the love goes away in any relationship, and you just find yourself going through the motions. One of my mentors in ministry, uh, he's no longer in the world, he's a man, man named Jim Burns, and he's been a mentor to me just because I've read his books and I've listened to some of his talks that he's given at conferences. He said this, and when I read this, I've, just, I've kept it, and I've kept it written out so that I will use this as a self-evaluation. And he said this, I know I'm working for God, but the greater question for me is, how is the shape of my soul 
is the work of God I'm doing destroying the work of God in me? In other words, all these things I'm doing for God, all this ministry, all these great things I'm doing, is that work I'm doing for God destroying the work that God is actually doing in me? And how would you even know if it is? How do you know if your love has drifted off course? Can I give you a few things just to evaluate? You can just write these down and do this later. It's a few questions to let yourself know. Maybe you've gotten in a rut that your love has eroded. Here's a question to ask yourself. Do I complain more than I celebrate? You find yourself complaining more than you celebrate? Maybe you're on the edge of burnout, and you just are running on fumes, but you find yourself going again and again and again because if you don't do it, no one else will. And you don't want to. You don't even feel any joy out of doing it anymore. So you reserve the right to complain about what you're doing and how overworked you are and, and how no one else understands or no one else is doing what they should do. And besides, no one else is going to do it quite the right way, so you better just go and do it yourself. And so you're serving, but there's no joy in it anymore. How about this question? Do I criticize more than I encourage? Do you criticize more than you encourage? You're cranky. And you can see everything that's wrong with everything and everyone, and no one else sees it, but you do, and you know, and you're going to point it out. Do you criticize more than you encourage? And maybe do you find yourself secretly looking forward to bad news because it confirms what you've suspected all along? That's a sign of something. Do you find yourself consuming more than you're contributing? You just come in and you're just like, I soak it up because this is for me. And you're not doing anything to contribute, but you're certainly expecting others to do for you. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. These are questions that I ask myself, too. But this is a good way to know what is it behind what you're doing, what's really driving and motivating you. This is about a church. This is about your relationship with God, but this could be about any relationship that you want to lay these questions over and look at how things are going because there's a, a tendency in all of our relationships to see a drift. And we, without even maybe even recognizing it happening, slowly over time, you've forsaken your first love. It can happen in so many ways. Here's the point of what Jesus is saying, and I just want if something to stick in your mind today. This is it. Working for Jesus, studying about Jesus, should never replace simply being with Jesus. That's the first thing right there. It's what he's doing something within you. And working for him is no substitute for that. Reading your Bible is no substitute for actually being with Jesus. And you've got all these notes, and you've studied us, and you've gone to that Bible study, but, but it's not driven out of love. It's just driven out of something else. Being with Jesus is the most important thing. And, and he is the ultimate motivator for everything that we do. We love because he first loved us. That's, God went first. Colossians chapter 3 says this. We're going to look at verse 17, verse 23 and 24. You said, and, and by the way, the Apostle Paul wrote this to friends in a different church, in the church, the Colossian church. And he said, whatever you do, whether it's in word or in deed, what you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, because it's the Lord Christ you're serving. That's the focus of our love. It, I, everything I do should, first of all, be motivated for Christ. I I serve you, but I look past you to the Christ who died for my sins and who loves me and has always loved me, and I'm serving him. It's who I work for. It's who I love. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of a pastor named Wayne Cordero. He's a pastor out in Hawaii. That's a rough job, right? And he said a, a couple in his church wanted to bless he and Anna with something really nice, so they gave him a gift certificate to a really nice restaurant, 
And Wayne said, we were going to take full advantage of this. We got a babysitter for the kids. We dressed up in the nice clothes. We got the shower, the cologne, the perfume, everything. We, he said, I washed and waxed the car because I planned on using the valet service. They, they look nice. They smell nice. They go to this restaurant. They get a beautiful table. It's candlelit overlooking a bay there in, on the Hawaiian island. And they're just they're like, we got this certificate. We're going to order everything that we wouldn't order if we were just coming here on our own dime. So they're like ordering really nice stuff. And the meal was fantastic. The end of the meal is there. The waiter brings the check, and Wayne pulls it out, and he says, okay, to his wife, why don't you give me the gift certificate, and I'll pay this. And she looked at him and said, I don't have the gift certificate. And he said, of course you've got the gift certificate. You're the wife. You're supposed to have the gift certificate. I don't have the gift certificate. And he said, in that moment, I realized we are in some deep yogurt. Because <laughs> we look rich, and we smell rich, and we ordered rich, but we are not rich. <laughs> Without that gift certificate, it invalidates, invalidates everything. And here's the point. We can look like a great church, and we can look like we've got it all together, and like we just, you know, you just know the Bible, and you're just doing all these great things, but without the love, that, that invalidates everything. If you don't have the love for God and the recognition that he's first loved you, that wipes everything out. You don't want to be in that place. So what do you do about that? I don't want to leave you just hanging with it. I don't want you just to evaluate yourself and go, man, I'm so awful. No, it's because Jesus doesn't leave us there either. He gives us a remedy to this. Look at verse 5. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Remember, repent. Do the things you did at first. Now, if you don't repent, this is, this is daunting to me. If you do not repent, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand, that represents a church in a community. It's the light of the world in that community. You mean Jesus would take that lampstand and remove it if that church isn't doing what it's supposed to do in that community? That's what he said. So what do you do if you think you've lost love? How do you get it back? Jesus is really clear here. Three things. Repent. Remember the height you've fallen from. Return to the things you used to do. Just remember where you were when you first were in love. Repent and go back to that and start doing the things you were doing when you're in love. Shift the analogy a little bit. If I had a couple come into my office and they were having trouble with their marriage and wanted, you know, like, I, we just don't think we're in love with the, each other anymore. First of all, I'd probably just have one or two counseling meetings before I'd very quickly say, I'm not trained to counsel. I'm going to introduce you to some of my friends who are counselors. But in those first couple of meetings, what I would say is, if you don't think you're in love with each other, go back to when you knew you were in love with each other. What were you doing back there when you loved each other? What were you doing for each other? What what kinds of cards and phone calls and spending time with each other? And what did you remember what you used to do and repent and go back to that? I like what the theologian Hank Hill once said. Bobby, sometimes you to get a girl, you just have to throw a little woo at her. What were you doing when you were in love? Do you remember, for those of you who are Christians? If you're not a Christian yet, that's fine. I'm glad you're here. So, But if you are a Christian, you remember the days when you first remembered and realized that Jesus loved you? And it first occurred to you that God might actually be serious when he says, I'm not going to hold your sins against you. That I'm going to forgive it and forget it, and there's no condemnation. And you're like, really? I don't, yeah, it's too good to be true. Yes, but it's, do you remember that zeal you had? Like, you were obnoxious when you were baptized. You were, like, telling everybody about Jesus and your family and your friends and your coworkers, like, would you just stop? And you're like, I can't. I, this is like the best thing I've ever experienced in my life. That's what you were like when you first realized you were loved by God. 
if your relationship feels like it's drawn a little cold and you feel a little distant from God, he's not moved anywhere. But I guarantee you, if you turn around, you'll find out he's right behind you. He's right there with you. All you have to do is repent and turn to him, and he's right there. Today, if you feel like your relationship with God has grown cold and distant, just remember what it was like when you remembered and heard for the first time that Jesus loves you and go back and do those things again. I got one last thing to say as the band's coming down, and that is to you who maybe are here and you are not yet a Christian. You've not stepped across that line and put your faith and trust in Jesus, said he's Lord, been baptized. I want you to know that Christianity and the Christian faith is not something that you do. It's about what God has already done for you through Jesus, and so you accept it. You don't earn your salvation. You just you come to Jesus and you say, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. You acknowledge your faith and your trust in him. You declare him to be God's son. You're immersed into Christ. That's what you do. The Bible says in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he is willing to pay the price for our sins. And if you would like to talk more about that today, you find myself or one of our elders, and, and I'll be down here or I'll be in the hallway, and we'll talk as long as it takes. But my invitation to you, whether you are a Christian who's drifted or if you've never done this at all, is to take a step closer to God today. Would you stand and let me pray for you? Father, thank you for sending this word through Jesus, through John, to your church in Ephesus, because I think it's a word for us that you've, you've got something to say to us today. And I'm, I've been praying that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would bypass any of our objections that we've got. Maybe you'd bypass any cynicism that's grown up in our hearts and just speak to us. And that, that we would walk out of this, this gathering of church today and that we would s- very seriously know that you've been among us, that, that you love us, and that all you simply want to do is for us to be closer to you. So, Father, help us to move back to you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.